good morning, everybody, and thanks for joining us today at New City Church. I want to begin with a favorite story of mine, and it goes like this. As a bagpiper, I play many gigs. Recently, I was asked by a funeral director to play at a graveside service for a homeless man. He had no family or friends, and so the service was to be at a pauper's cemetery or a poor man's cemetery in the Kentucky backcountry. As I was not familiar with the backwoods, I got lost, and being a typical man, I didn't stop for directions. I finally arrived an hour late and saw the funeral guy had evidently gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. There were only the diggers and crew left, and they were eating their lunch. I felt badly and apologized to the men for being late. I went to the side of the grave and looked down, and the vault lid was already in place. I didn't know what else to do, so I started to play. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather around. I played my heart out for, and my soul out for this man who had no family and no friends. I played like I'd never played before for this homeless man. And as I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep. They wept, I wept, we all wept together. When I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. Though my head hung low, my heart was full. As I opened the door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, I never seen nothing like that before, and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. <laughs> now, there's nothing quite like being completely unaware of your surroundings. Maybe being somewhere where you thought you were supposed to be, when in reality, you're somewhere else entirely. And I share that story because as we today get to the end of Genesis, our last uh, sermon in the book of Genesis, I don't want us to miss the point of the book of Genesis. You see, it's not primarily about science or even how old the earth is or how many animals were in the ark. Um, it's not even about how good of a person Joseph was and how we should be, maybe emulate our lives after him. It's not even about that either. It's easy for us to read Genesis and miss the actual point of what's going on. You see, the point of Genesis is to tell us who we are, who God is, what our relationship with him is like, and his invitation and desire for us to rule and reign with him that he's inviting us into his plan of creation. The problem with that, however, is that all of us are broken. All of us have sinful. All of us have done things we would even admit are wrong. And so how does a perfect creator God rule and reign with people who are not like him in any way? And so today, as we end our time in Genesis, here's the question we're going to look at. What does Genesis teach us about our sin? What does Genesis teach us about our sin, what God's going to do with it, and what we should do with it in the midst of our brokenness, our own falling short, the times that we disobey God and go our own way? What does Genesis teach us about our sin? That's the question for us this morning. And so I mean, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 50? It's the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, there's a black one in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we invite you to take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We page uh, 45 there. Now, today, as we end the book of Genesis, we're reading the end of Joseph's story. Now, Joseph, not the father of Jesus, this is a different Joseph. And again, all of Genesis, we've seen time and time again, uh, God trying to redeem and forgive and bring a people to follow himself. And yet everybody's screwed up, but everybody has gone their own way. Everyone has done like, not even like, kind of like, that was a dumb decision, but we've read some like e evil, wicked decisions. And now we get to the end of Joseph's life. We had Abraham who God called out and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And then he blows it, but God is still faithful. Then Isaac and then Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, including Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob dies, the patriarch of the family. The whole family is now settled in Egypt where Joseph is a high-ranking Egyptian governing official. Jacob dies. They have his funeral service. And then it says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. 
says, then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, sorry, they hadn't had the funeral service yet. He just, he just passed away. And he wept and kissed him. Verse two, he commanded his servants who were physicians to embalm his father. So they embalmed Israel. They took 40 days to complete this for embalming takes that long. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So the last chapter of Genesis starts out with Jacob dying, and then Joseph instructs kind of his servants to prepare his dad for burial. Now, interesting to note, there's only two people in the entire Old Testament that are embalmed, and that is Jacob, and then it's going to be Joseph as well. It's also important to note that for the Egyptians, embalming also included various religious practices. So it wasn't just like a physical thing you did to somebody's body. They did it because they believed certain things about the afterlife, and so they would have priests come in and do prayers and chance when they would do this embalming process as well. So it could be, we don't know this for sure, but it is perhaps significant that here Joseph only commands the physicians. There's no mention of priests to come and embalm his father. Regardless, Jacob is going to be embalmed, which will lead to his body being preserved for the trip back to his final burial spot in the land of Canaan. So he's going to be traveled some 500 plus miles back to be buried with his wife Leah, his parents, and his grandparents in the land of Canaan. Now, 70 days is a longer than typical or longer than hours time of mourning. This was no doubt in respect to Joseph. And so there was this long mourning period in respect to Joseph because of all Joseph had done for the country of Egypt and his high ranking position. And so they mourned for his father. And then what you see after this is that there are plans made for Joseph and his brothers and their families and many other family members. They travel back to the land of Canaan. They bury Jacob and have the funeral for Jacob. And then it says this in verse 15. So after the funeral of Jacob, if you look at chapter 50 down at verse 15, it says this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. In other words, now that the leader of the family is dead, <coughs> excuse me, Joseph's brothers are now worried that Joseph is going to pay them back for what they did to him. They're afraid. Again, if you remember the story, a long, long time ago, they, they originally sold Joseph into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. We saw the reunion. But they're afraid that now, maybe, maybe Joseph was just being kind, but now that their father was dead, now Joseph is going to get them for what they did to him. Now, it should be pointed out, of course, we don't know what their relationship with Joseph was like. We have seen nothing but care from Joseph since they reunited. We've already seen that he's forgiven his brothers when they came down to Egypt to buy grain during the famine. He then, he then invites them to live in Egypt. He gets his family really good jobs for foreigners in the land of Egypt. And then they get to live there. They end up acquiring land. While many of the other Egyptians were losing their land, they're acquiring land and possessions. They're becoming wealthy. All these things have happened under Joseph's care, and yet they assume that Joseph was probably just waiting for Jacob to die all along, and now his 11 brothers are going to be punished by, for what they did to Joseph those years ago. <clears throat> so it says this in verse 16. They sent this message to Joseph. So by this point, they're back in the land of Egypt. They sent a message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgressions and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And then it says, Joseph wept when their message came to him. Now, what's interesting is we don't know this for sure, but it is very likely that this statement from Jacob never likely occurred. 
Like, we have no record of it. Of course, there's a lot of things we don't have record of, but we have no record of Jacob telling all of his other sons without Joseph, hey, when I die, make sure you tell Joseph I said that you guys should be forgiven. In fact, uh, the scripture narrative just had told us in verse 15 that they are afraid of Joseph. So they likely made this up to try to make sure that Joseph doesn't harm them. And so they, this message gets sent to Joseph, and then he's, he weeps over it. Now, again, we're not told why, but it seems most likely that his weeping seems to be because of their misunderstanding of his character and his goodness and his love for them. They, they really think, or they're at least afraid, that now, he, for whatever reason, he hasn't done it yet, but now Joseph is going to punish them. Right, that even though he never has before, and they've lived in the land of Egypt 17 years since they reconciled with Joseph. So for 17 years, nothing but goodness has come their way. But for now, for whatever reason, now Joseph is going to get them. Right? It's like the brothers don't really think Joseph views them as family, but as people who deserve to be punished. So they send this message. This is what our dad said. And then they go and meet with him. Verse 18, it then says this. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, we are your slaves. So they send a message, and then they go and meet with Joseph. They bow down again before him, as they've done before, and they offer him themselves as slaves, because, of course, in their mind, it's better to be slay, enslaved than to be killed. Right? The ones who sold Joseph into slavery are now offering themselves again to be his slaves. They still think, right? They still think that Joseph is going to get back at them for what he, they did to him. Now, as you read this, just for the best of your and I ability, if you put yourselves in Joseph's shoes and his perspective, like he has to be thinking, right, what else could I have done to show you that I've forgiven you? Like, what else could I have done? Right, he's already explicitly forgiven them. He's given them food. He's given them a place to live. He's given them new jobs. He's given them land. And he's expressed his forgiveness to them in the past already. And he's even already told them, hey, you meant this for bad, but God actually meant it for good. That because of what you have done, I was able to save our family in the famine. Right, that, that your evil was meant for good. He's actually told this to them already. Yet they still think he's going to pull the rug out from under them at some point. Right? They really can't accept that Joseph has actually forgiven them. Right? In their minds, they can't accept that this is actually a reality. And I think for many of us, right, if we're honest, this sense of not really being able to be forgiven is something that we can all relate to. Right? So maybe you've wronged somebody in the past or you've done something and every single time you think about it now, like even if you've been given, forgiven for it, like you're, so, you're, you're indwelt with shame and embarrassment. Like you feel awful every time you remember what you have done. Even if this person has forgiven you, whenever you think about it, again, you're embarrassed, you're ashamed, and you have a really hard time thinking they actually have forgiven you. Have you ever been in a situation where someone's forgiven you and you're like, well, you're, I know you're saying that, but I don't think you're like actually doing that. You, you're probably doing that to be nice or because it's the right thing to do, but there's no way you actually have forgiven me. In fact, here's what I know. I think certainly all of us have at some point, or maybe even right now, think this way about God, right? And so what happens, right? We pray for salvation all the time. Because like, well, I'm not sure if that's stuck. And like, I've done a lot of bad things. And so maybe I need to ask God to save me again. Or we, we make promises to do better. Like, God, I know I've blown it, but I'm going to do better in the future. And so just forgive me this time, because I'm not going to do, I'm going to repeat my same mistakes. Or we think like, at best, at best, God puts up with us. Like at best, he's like, hey man, I, I know I love you because I've said that, but like, I really just like, I have to love you. I mean, I love these people more, but like, I'll put up with you. That's, that's how we think about God, I think, if we're honest sometimes, 
Now, uh, to be clear, I'm not talking about repenting for sin, which is continual, right? It's why many times here at New City Church, after the sermon, we have a time of confession where we confess our sins to God. But, but what I am saying is there's a difference between repenting of sin and it being like this, this positional thing of like, I feel like I'm no longer your son or no longer your daughter or no longer part of your family. And so we, we think we have to do these things to be reaccepted by God. If we are honest, I think many times we are just like Joseph's brothers in light of the gospel, that God has offered redemption and peace and grace through his son, Jesus. But we really don't think God can forgive us. We really don't think that, that God's grace is sufficient for what we have done, maybe for what other people have done, but not for us. And so one of the things we see in chapter 50 in the Joseph story and in the book of Genesis is this, is that your sin is no match for God's grace. Your sin is no match for God's grace. This is what's happening with Joseph's brothers, that, that he has forgiven them. This is what's happened time and time again in the book of Genesis. People have done these awful things, and yet God is still faithful. In fact, one of the, my favorite things to, like, to think about when it comes to this idea of, like, I don't deserve to be forgiven by God or God can't forgive me is to reflect on the reality that you don't get to tell God what he can and cannot do. You don't get to tell God, well, this sin is too much. You don't get to tell God, well, I'm sure you've run out of patience. If he has said something and promised something, it is true, regardless of what you and I think about it. It kind of makes me think of my son, Roman. He's five, and he's still at the age where he kind of thinks we're um, even athletically. Like he, and I know this because like we'll play hockey. He's got like these mini hockey goals or this mini basketball goal. We'll play soccer in the backyard. And like I'll let him win sometimes and I'll win sometimes. And when I beat him, like he's not happy. Like, and he's good with it. Like we've talked about like controlling our emotions and all these things. But I can, he, he's disappointed in the way of like, I should have won or I could have won. It's not like, yeah, he's better than me. And like every time I win, I'm just like lucky or whatever. Like he literally thinks he can beat me. Right? And that's about, we're about 10 or 12 years away from that, right? And so, so for, he can't. But I'll let him win sometimes, and he gets really upset when he can't because he actually thinks that, like, we're on par or that he's actually a little bit better than me. And I share that because some of us, hear me, some of us think ourselves as equals to God. We think that. Now, we might not say that, but practically, this is what we believe. When we think we cannot be forgiven or our sins are too much, what you're saying is what I have done, what I've accomplished, let's say it's in a bad way for my sin, is greater than God because God can't forgive it. What we're actually thinking is that we are equal to God, right? Joseph's brothers, all these things Joseph has done for them, and they still think he's out to get them. They still haven't seen his grace and mercy in their life. And so here's how Joseph responds, verse 19. It says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And I just want to point out, what a response. Like, what a response that this is how his brothers regard him. And of course, Joseph does have a lot of power. Really, whatever he says would go for his family. But Joseph's question and response to, the, to his brothers here emphasizes that he is only an instrument that God has used but he's not God or some divine being himself, that he is simply God's ambassador. And I think for us, we would say, well, yeah, like that's what he's supposed to say. Of course, he's not God. But I, again, if you're Joseph, can you imagine being someone of such power and societal honor? 
That whatever you says goes, that you have servants and slaves that bow down to you, that you command, like you, you, you are advising the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh himself, whatever you want for as long as you've been in this leadership position for at least 17 plus years, you have gotten. And yet you're still willing to say, you think I am God? That's what he says. And then this leads to one of the most famous verses in all of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 he then continues, Joseph says this, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result, the survival of many people, right? You sold me into slavery. God used it for his plans. And that all these people were saved because of the plan of, of how to uh, saving all this grain during the years of plenty to help people survive during the famine. <clears throat> and then verse 21, it says this, therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So his response to his brothers, again, is this. You, what you planned for evil, God planned for good. That he used his brother's evil intent for not just like, okay, good, but great good. He literally saved a nation of people through what his brothers did when they originally sold Joseph into slavery. Therefore, what he's saying is there's no need for me to hold a grudge. And I think it's important to note here as well that Joseph's brothers have also repented. Right? It's not like they justified what they've done in the past or they ignored it or they pretend like it wasn't a big deal. They have faced that the evil that they did, which was evil, to sell their brother into slavery. What they did was evil and wrong, but they have repented from that. And I think that's partially what's so hard for Joseph. He's like, you repented and I've forgiven you. And so he tells them, God took this evil that you did, and he used it for good. Now, not an excuse for evil, but it shows us that evil does not, would not win. It shows us that evil, in fact, does not even threaten God. And what I, what I might even like submit to you is that, is this not the whole book of Genesis? That from Adam and Eve all the way through chapter 50 in the story of Joseph and through his brothers, we see God redeeming and forgiving and moving the story of redemption forward in spite of people's sins. And if you've been with us for some of these weeks, we've read some like not just bad stuff, horrific evil stuff. It's always funny to me when people are like, God of the Old Testament is evil and vengeance and mean. And then you get Jesus and he's like, he's like farting rainbows and butterflies and he drinks decaf coffee and he's like holding a sheep. Like they're two different gods. I'm like, have you literally, I mean, you've, have you, you clearly haven't read this. Because when you read Genesis, you're like, smite him now. Like, what are you waiting for? That he's, he's full of truth, but he's full of grace. And that Jesus is a perfect reflection of his heavenly father. He's not some different being. All throughout Genesis, we have seen God's grace and mercy that his faithfulness to redeem his people who do not deserve it will not end. That God and his sovereignty, that is in his power over, that he rules over all creation, that, that nothing takes God by surprise, that he used the evil of Joseph's brothers, look at this, for their own redemption. Like the evil of his own brothers was actually used for his own brother's good. How is that fair? That makes no sense. And again, what this shows us in chapter 50, the story of Joseph and the book of Genesis also shows us that your sin cannot stop God's plan of redemption. Your sin cannot stop God's plan of redemption. You are not God. And your sin is not equal to his power, right? His brothers have repented, which is good. 
And I want to say this, this the same result that Joseph's brothers get is offered to us for those that repent and believe. What I'm not saying here is that everybody's good. It doesn't matter what you think, what you do, what you believe, because God is gracious. What this means is for those who have trusted in Jesus, his plan for redemption in your life cannot be stopped. But you will not experience his plan of redemption if you're not following and trusting and believing him as Lord of your life and not yourself. In fact, Genesis 50-20, that, that what you plan for evil, God plans for good, brings to mind like a very well-known book in the verse of Romans, which is kind of like the Genesis 50-20 of the New Testament. I mean, it's different context, but it's the same kind of vibe. In the book of Romans, that people also often quote incorrectly, just like they do 50-20, it says this, be on the screen. The Apostle Paul writes this, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And again, if you read this verse on its own, just like if you read 50-20 on its own, that what you meant for evil, God meant for good, you can misunderstand what Paul's actually writing about here. But people often, when they quote Romans 8.28, focus on the idea that we know all things work together for good, right? So, so if something bad has happened in your life and you don't know why, well, it's not over yet because the good hasn't come. That good will come from it. But again, it's helpful to know the context to understand Romans 8. Romans 8 is all about the life in the spirit. The apostle Paul, just try with me for a second, and then you'll see how this connects to Genesis. He, he talks about how followers of Christ are indwelt with the Holy Spirit and that we can walk with him as we cultivate a heart towards God. The spirit guides us, convicts us of sin, and leads us towards holiness. And in Romans 8, Paul kind of contrasts the flesh, which is our own selfish desires, with the spirit. And that when we pursue a God-honoring life, uh, the Spirit helps us uh, pursue the things that are above instead of our own desires. In fact, I would summarize Romans 8 leading to verse 28 like this. Life is hard, but God is faithful. That's what Paul is talking about. And in the Spirit, you can experience God's faithfulness. And then he says this in Romans 8, 28, right? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so if you read all of Romans and all of Romans 8, you see that the good in Romans 8 is not that you'll get your dream job, uh, that your relationship will be restored, or, or that you'll be healed. The good in Romans 8 is the redemption of God. The good of Romans 8 is that he can even use bad, evil, wicked things to draw you closer to him. That even pain and difficulty gives us the opportunity to experience him in ways that we would have missed had we not gone through what we went through. Again, for those who love him and who are walking with him. In other words, Romans 8.28 is also a promise to believers. It's not a blanket promise for all people. And so just as we have seen in Genesis, we've seen how this story points us to a Savior who is greater than Joseph. We've talked about many weeks, the last couple of times in the book of Joseph, how Jesus is a greater and better Joseph who will one day save his family. That what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God redeemed it as a means by which all of Israel would be saved. Now hear me, this does not mean that Joseph liked what happened to him. He certainly didn't like being enslaved and then thrown into a dungeon for 12 years of his life. He certainly didn't like that. Yet Joseph, again, in spite of all of his sufferings, God used it for salvific, for saving purposes. And so if you look at Genesis 50, 20 through the lens that all scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus, we talk about that a lot here at New City, then, then there are three things we can learn from 50, 20, this famous verse that many people use often out of context. First is this, that Genesis 50, 20 is not a blanket statement for all people. It's not saying God uses every bad thing and makes good from it. As if anything bad that happens to you, great will come from it automatically. 
In other words, to receive its wisdom and its teachings, you must know, love, and follow God. Right? Even Joseph's brothers experience the redemption from their evil because they have a relationship with Joseph. So Genesis 50, 20, what, God meant for e- what you meant for evil, God meant for good, is not a blanket statement for all people. Also, what you see in Genesis 50, verse 20 is this. Genesis 50, 20 does not mean things taken by themselves are good. It does not mean that things taken by themselves are good. And, and I just want to like, man, if you just lean in for, for what I'm saying here, some things, hear me, some things that we experience are decidedly bad. Like, like they're, they're just bad. And in this life, there will be no real good that we can see that comes from it. And so what happens is you hear Romans 8 or Genesis 50, and you're like, man, this went from bad. This thing is awful. And everyone's telling me, well, it's okay because God's going to use it for good things. And, and I don't see anything good. Therefore, if I fail, has God lied to me? And yet what we see here is that this verse speaks about all things being worked out under the providence of God for our ultimate good. Again, if you are in Christ, what it is not saying is that everything that happens is good. It's not saying the trauma, the experience, the abuse, the lot, whatever you experienced, that it was a good thing. But it is saying that what can come from it can be good if you're walking with the Lord. That there could be good things that come from it, even if we don't like those good things that come from it. Like, I'll be real. I mean, many of you know, if you've been at New City for any length of time, you know my story that when I was 19 years old, my dad took his own life. And there have been many things because of that experience in my life that God has used for his good. Right? There have been many conversations that I've had. In fact, even two weeks ago, I preached a funeral for a, family, for, for a person in our church who had a family member who took their own life. And so I'm preaching this funeral, and because of my experience, I can say things that most people cannot say in that situation. Like, I can just say it because I know it, and I've been there. And the family knows that I've been there. And so there's a, a lot of good that has come from my own experience. And can I be honest with you? I would trade all of that good to have my dad back. I would much rather not being able to, to, to preach a powerful sermon at a suicide if that means my dad could still be here. In fact, there's a lot of things in my life that I've missed out on because my dad died when I was 19 years old. There, there is, there's no, there, I would never trade. I would always rather have my dad than being able to be, encourage people in a unique way because of my life experience. Things taken by themselves are not good. That's not what Genesis is saying. But what it is saying is that God is able to work them together for good. In other words, that that God sees the big picture even when we do not, and that in the end, he can and he will weave it all together in in a way that results in our good. But as Romans 8 tells us, only for those who are called according to his purpose. The goodness of seeing and experiencing and tasting God cannot be experienced if you are not walking with him. Or put another way, God's good plan will not be experienced by those who don't know him. God's good plan will not be experienced by those who do not know him. That's what Genesis 50, 20 is showing us. Listen, Joseph's brothers experienced God's good plan over Joseph's life because they are in relationship with him, because they are a part of his family. That's why they got to come and stay and live in Egypt. And Jesus, in the same way, he seeks and saves sinners so we can experience his perfect kingdom. And if we do not know Jesus, we will not experience his good. If we do not know Jesus, we will not experience his good. And hear me, it's not because he didn't offer it to us. It's not because he didn't offer it to us. It's because we thought we did not need it. 
And so in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph reassures his brothers again of his love for care and care for them, even though they didn't deserve it. They had repented, which was good, but they still didn't deserve all the blessings and kindness that they had received from Joseph. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us in Christ. And then if we want to end, verse 21, this is how Genesis ends, the chapter and the book. It says this. Again, Joseph is talking to his brothers who are bowing before him, afraid that he's going to kill them and enslave them and all these things. He says, therefore, again, because what you meant for evil, God meant for good, therefore, do not be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Can I just say, man, I think so often we think, hey, I'm going to repent. And God's like, idiot, took you long enough. Finally, I've forgiven you again. What does it say here? That he spoke kindly to them. This is what our God does. No matter how far, you, how long you've been walking on your own, no matter how big you've blown it this week, he is comforted and he is kind and he is gracious every time we turn to him. Verse 22, Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He sought Ephraim's sons to the third generation. Ephraim was his, one of his kids, so he's like a great, great, great granddad. He sold them to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's sons, Micah, were recognized by Joseph. In other words, just like Joseph's first two sons were adopted by uh, Jacob, uh, uh, Manasseh's first son was adopted by Joseph. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, so this is, you know, fast forward some years from this event. I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph's made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. And Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. So Genesis ends with Joseph giving instructions to his family, saying, hey, one day God's going to be gracious and kind, and he's going to bring our family, the family of Israel, back into the land of Canaan to possess as his own people. And when that happens, I want you to take my body and bring me to my family and bury me in the land that God promised his family. And so even the end of Genesis, it ends with a reminder that evil won't win. But we will only experience that victory for you and I after Jesus if we are in Christ. In fact, this is what the Christmas season that we are celebrating is all about. That God came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he lived a perfect life that we could not live. That no one in all of scripture was able to live. Died the death we deserve. And he's redeeming a people to himself who would trust, believe, and follow him in the midst of our shame and our brokenness. That he offers us a way out. In fact, for me, one of my favorite realities of the Christmas story is that even in the midst of your own suffering and pain and heartache that you're experiencing maybe right now, even in the midst of all of that, all the questions and the doubts of God, why is this happening? Why would you allow it? Why would you not stop it? Even in the midst of all of our doubts, we do know this, that the Christmas season reminds us that it, we do know this, that it is not because he did not care. Because if God did not care, he wouldn't have come. So while we might not know why God has allowed or won't stop certain things happening, what we do know is it's not because he doesn't care. Because if he didn't care, he wouldn't have come to redeem and offer you and I a place in his kingdom. So what does Genesis teach us about our sin? Well, again, Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so here's what ultimately it is pointing to, and that's this. That there is no sin, there's no sin that Jesus cannot forgive.
There is nothing you can say, nothing you can do. There can be nothing that can be done to you that Jesus can't redeem, offer life, offer goodness, offer salvation, offer redemption in. The question, hear me, is not if he will. The question is whether or not you will allow him. That just like for us, we can read stories, and we'll read a story about this in the coming weeks, of like Pharisees and religious leaders who assume, like they assume they don't need God. So they have a problem with Jesus, because like, well, I don't need Jesus. I've got the law, and I tithe, and I do the sacrifices. Like, I don't need you. And listen, while you might not be a quote-unquote religious leader, you and I can have that very same posture when we look at Jesus and say, I don't need you. Like, I'm good enough on my own. I've, I've done my enough thing. Like, it's, it's good. you're good for those people, people that, but I'm good. Like, that's this, we do the same thing. If we do not think we need the redemption of Jesus, we won't have it. He will not force himself upon you. But for those of us that would be honest about our brokenness, be honest about our need for a Savior, that with comfort and kindness, he says, welcome home. With comfort and grace, he says, you are forgiven because I love you. There is no sin that Jesus cannot forgive. And that is what Genesis is pointing us to.